Hey everybody, welcome back to Shadow Particles, a His Dark Materials companion podcast. I'm your host, Evan Minto, and with me today is our first returning guest of season two. It's Kara, Kara Esten on Twitter. Welcome back. Hello. You're my go-to episode two person now because you've done episode two of season one and episode two of season two. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this is the thing is I'm not, you know, I don't have enough of like great takes to be the opener, but you know, second, second is ideal for me. <laughs> the pressure's off. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, we are recording on Thanksgiving Day, so thanks for for taking out the time for that, and uh, happy Thanksgiving to all of my American listeners. So we're we're gonna recap and discuss season two, episode two of His Dark Materials, the TV show, the house rules here. Uh, we are not going to spoil anything from the show. So if you are a book reader, you're all good. Or sorry, if you're not a book reader, if you're a, a show viewer. Uh, and this time, the new rule, as I mentioned last time, is we are recapping the U.S. release on HBO, which is a week later than the U.K. one on BBC. So uh, we won't be talking about the latest episode in the U.K. yet. But before we talk about the episode, let's do our three intro questions. Last time you were on, we had two intro questions. You can kind of rehash, just briefly summarize your answers to those. But we've got a, an extra question in here. So first up, what's your familiarity with His Dark Materials? Uh, I read the books when I was a teenager, um, but I have not read them since. Okay, so yeah, you're coming in with like vague recollection of of the broad strokes of the books, but not not a, like immediate uh, memory of it. And most of my recollection is like centered around Amber Spyglass, which is which is the best book. What did you think of season one overall? Last time we heard from you, it was uh, episode two of season one. So. Yeah, I, I really liked it. I'm like, more than anything, I feel like I'm just happy the show is finally being made and that they're doing a pretty good job with it. Like the only the only part that really sort of graded on me in season one was Lin-Manuel Miranda's Texas accent. Everything else is like spot on. Yeah, yeah it's a little it's a little a little off uh, even in this season, but he's not in this episode. But I believe the next episode is more like more Lee centric. So we'll, we'll, I guess, be treated to more of his fair weather texas accent <laughs> yeah i mean i guess it's like it's more of a thing just because i grew up in that part of the country so i just feel like it's you know it grates on me more and it's not that bad he does a good job you know insofar as like he's a good actor and it's fun to watch him but like sorry i don't mean to complain about a character that isn't even in this episode but <laughs> that was the only the only drawback of season one for me uh so i, I thought it was really good cool and uh the third one which you've answered before is what is your demon didn't I say last time it was some sort of bird? I think probably I did. Probably. Yeah. So it, it remains a bird, but it's either like a hummingbird or like I really have gotten into night herons lately. There's a bunch of them down by uh, the the lake in Oakland. And I just think that they're they're wonderful birds. So either a hummingbird or a night heron. All right. Bird gang. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> So without further ado, let's get into our discussion of episode two, The Cave. I'm going to read my very long summary here. I feel like a lot of stuff happened this episode, but we talked before the show and you felt like not a lot happened. So eh, let's let's try to describe it here. Uh, Lyra and Will head back to Will's Oxford through the window that Will used. Uh, Lyra is looking for a scholar who can explain what dust is to her because the scholars in her world aren't allowed to talk about it. And Will has much more, uh, more, much more like down to earth needs. He needs to make sure that his mom is okay, and he's looking into his inheritance to try to support her. 
Uh, both of them end up stalked either directly or indirectly by Lord Boreal, who's got a foothold in this world, as we know from season one. Lyra meets Dr. Mary Malone, a physicist studying dark matter at, I don't, did it say which? I think it said which college. It's like St. James or something, uh, but a college in Oxford. Uh, she shows Lyra the cave, the namesake of the episode, which is a computer that observes dark matter. And Lyra, it, to Mary's surprise, is able to talk to it the way she talks to the alethiometer. Back in Lyra's world, Mrs. Coulter is uh, orchestrating Father McPhail's rise to power after the death of Cardinal Sturrock, who I don't think we talked about in the previous episode, but he got killed by uh, Ruta Scotti during the attack in the submarine. Uh, and we also get an interrogation scene where the Magisterium interrogates and imprisons Dr. Lancelius, who is returning from season one, the witch's consul. Uh, and then kind of the climax of the episode is Father McPhail ordering a pretty brutal firebombing of the witches as part of his consolidation of power. Uh, and we also get a little bit of Ruta and Serafina doing some like exposition dumping about the prophecy <laughs> in the woods or whatever. I think that's that summarizes most of it. There's a lot of little details that are really great in here, but the, those are the the broad bits of it. I feel like this is a lot. This is like a lot of different threads. With different I guess characters. it's less that, you know, it's less that, you know, a lot happened, but more that it feels like... I guess I I expected the thing that I remember in the subtle knife was the uh, like scenes in uh, Chittagaza and mm -hmm. like I know like I mean I'm not going to spoil it obviously because of the rules which I'm going to follow steadfastly um, <laughs> but uh, I do remember there were a lot of scenes that were taking place there and so for some reason I'm just like go go back to the city go back to the cool place go back to the weird like uh you know abandoned place like and, and i guess like you know part of it is also like i guess once we start leaving lyra's world to me it becomes like the world itself becomes less interesting and it's now more about the sort of like connections and relationships between the worlds and we didn't really get like a ton of that in this episode it was more about like i feel like the big exposition the big sort of like thing that happened was you know politics of the magisterium yeah, I think that's that's true. I hadn't really thought about that, that the the fact that it leaves Chittagatze might feel a little weird uh, because Chittagatze just got introduced and it's like this interesting new world. And then we go right back to Will's world. But what I really like about this episode, and this is kind of just getting into our, our overall thoughts here, is that like putting Lyra in Will's world is just incredibly charming, like watching her kind of like try to figure out, you know, cars or she asks him about his phone. It's a great conversation that's not in the book because like cell phones didn't exist in the book, uh, like when it came out. And, you know, he she's like, what's that? And he's like, uh, it like tells me it tells me information like the news and stuff. And she's like, oh, I've got a thing like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's great yeah, level. I guess I like the the alethiometer truly is just like analog. It's like an analog iPhone. <laughs> but yeah, well, that it, it makes it funnier, too, when you think back to episode one of season one, where we, we were all laughing about the kind of goofy, but very, very, I think, accurate thing where she gets the alethiometer and doesn't know how to read it. And she's like, well, it said, he said it would tell the truth. And then she's like, just yells at it. Where's Roger? How can I find Roger? Like she's talking to Siri. Yeah. Well, it's like, now you can have that experience. Now you know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I and, and there's kind of just like this culture clash thing where it's a mix of like that their cultures and worlds being different and also their like outlook and attitude being different like Lyra is is just totally headstrong and Will is incredibly cautious for good reason right he's had to live his whole life like being super cautious and responsible um and I, that dynamic works works great here 
Well, yeah, and watching watching Lyra kind of just like trudge ahead regardless and like go to a bunch of different places. I do remember thinking like when they split up, I'm like, how are they going to get back together? Because you're thinking about this from the perspective of like, okay, well, you know, Will is living in the, you know, our world. So he kind of has an idea of like how to get in contact with people. He's got his phone, he's got whatever. And like, but you're just kind of sending Lyra out there into the world and you have no like, and she's just like, yeah, whatever. I'll just go and do like whatever. And then they get back together and Will's like, where were you? (laughs) Well, that, that's one of the, the touches I really liked is a recurring theme of this episode is that Lyra is kind of running around being like, you know, trying to find stuff that reminds her of her Oxford. Right. And so she's there's bits and pieces she remembers, like the general layout. But she's like, that's that's where Jordan's supposed to be. But there's not a college there, which I don't think is book accurate, by the way. I believe Jordan is in the same location and is very similar to Exeter College. So I think in the in the, the like official book canon I guess she would have found Exeter and been like, that's not Jordan. That's a different college. Uh, that's less but, you know, dramatic than just like a big empty ditch. I, <laughs> I, think it, I think it worked much better that they like walk up to just this like under construction thing that just has nothing there. Uh, right. but, the future home of Jordan College. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the like but but the the place where they meet is one of the only places that they that they kind of land on that they both know that exists in both of their worlds right which is the the oxford botanic gardens and i I like that there's just a little conversation where she mentions it and then he's like yeah we have those too right and so it's kind of this touch point between their worlds where they can it's like a, a a shared reference point so they can both meet up yeah those connections i feel like building up those connections and building up those similarities i think is like really fascinating as well especially because like i don't know i feel like the big similarity that kind of ends up being the focal point of this episode or the big sort of difference i guess is that the world that lyra lives in is so dominated by the magisterium and you know uh will's world is like mary's you know just hanging out doing like physics that would be deeply prohibited you know and that whole thing and it's like the contrast between the scenes of like mary working and um the magisterium uh you know having their like trial or whatever it's very i don't know it's very um it makes it feel significantly more dissimilar and having that little moment of familiarity is really cool yeah well since you brought her up i we are now entering a Mary Malone appreciation zone. Uh, I love this character in the book and she's played by Simone Kirby in the show. And oh my God, I love her. She's so good. She's perfect. Like it just like it nailed like they, they, she has like pretty much captured like the essence of this character in a way that like I didn't mm-hmm. expect. Like I feel like in the books, like I like her in the books, but like she's necessarily like, you know, a little bit flatter because she's the third like major character that's introduced. She's like, she's not a child in contrast to, you know, Lyra. So like when I was a kid and I was reading it, I was like, yeah, I don't know. Mary's cool, but like, she's not like as an adult, I didn't have as much resonance. And now watching this, like, I guess probably as a woman who's like, you know, roughly around the same age as Mary, I'm like, Oh yeah, cool. Yeah. This is great. Oh, well, I always, I always say when I read the books as a kid, you know, I identified with Lyra and Will and then Mary's like your cool aunt or something. Uh, when I reread them as an adult, I was like, Oh wow. I really, really relate to Mary now. <laughs> like she's this like tired scientist. <laughs> Yeah, we're all cool ants who are tired all the time. Yeah, exactly. 
so and also again with the culture clash the scenes with her and lyra are great and and both of them are doing really good acting work i think where like lyra's got a great scene where she's the alethiometer told her to tell the truth to the uh to the scholar right and so she like has to stop herself from lying or or you know bending the truth about being from another world so she just walks up and just starts blabbing because she like doesn't know what to do she's like well, we have dust and they won't let us talk about it. And there's the magisterium and my uncle, who is actually my father, and he killed my friend. And, and then she stops and she's like, I'm doing it all wrong. I just I'm not explaining it right. She's so bad at telling the truth. I mean, Liar mm-hmm, Silvertongue mm-hmm. is not like you don't get the last name like that by, you know, telling the truth constantly or even having any remote experience with it. So I feel like that's like a really cool sort of like, oh, my God, this is actually significantly more difficult than like I anticipated. <laughs> and it's I got to say, it's just two people talking in a room. And maybe this is my, you know, book fan rose rose colored glasses speaking. But just the conversation with them is like spellbinding to me, just like the watching Mary kind of try to figure out what's going on. Like this girl just walked into my office. She's talking about another world. Is she talking like I like the way she's trying to like bridge the gap where she's like your world, your school. Like she's trying to map it onto like why? What is this girl talking about? And you get to see that thought process in real time. And you also get to tell that, like, Mary is taking her seriously. I feel like that's that's the the other thing. thing. Yes, yes. It resonates so well to just see this like adult, you know, look, listening to this girl who's like telling this story that seems wild and crazy and be like, no, slow down. Let's go through it piece by piece instead of just dismissing it wholeheartedly. Well, and that's what makes I think this is something I didn't even think about too much in the book in this scene. But for some reason in the show, it kind of kind of stuck out more that Mary is like the polar opposite of the many of the adult figures in Lyra's world, especially her parents. She's like takes her seriously. She is very kind of like kind, right? She she like this crazy girl walks in and starts talking about another world and she just sits her down. She hears that her friend died and she doesn't go like, what are you talking about? She goes, I'm sorry to hear about your friend. Do you want a cookie? Let's sit down and talk, right? Yeah, it's like, oh, it, you know, it's like finally like somebody, somebody like that's an adult in her life is sitting down and listening to her and giving mm-hmm. her agency and letting her control the discussion. It's like, Finally, that must be like this sort of refreshing moment, which like, I don't know, like as a kid, like you read the books and you're like, well, that's why she's like the cool aunt or whatever. But like Mm -hmm. as an adult, like you kind of look at that and you're just like, dang, like adults really do take children for granted in like, yeah, in almost every way. And like in the real world, in the books and whatever, like it's just true. Yeah. And She's also notably, she's a scientist, right? And both of Lyra's parents are scientists in some form or another, but they're basically evil scientists, as we've seen. But Mary is actually like, she's a good one, right? She's one of the good ones, or at least she is so far, right? And there's a great scene. I'm skipping ahead a little bit in here, but there's a great scene when Lyra gets hooked up to the cave, to Mary's computer, where with the elect, like she puts the electrodes on her. And, and it's unspoken, but Lyra just sort of recoils a little bit from them. It's very subtle. And she's like, oh, it's not going to hurt, right? And it's like, well, she's just been through two different instances of people doing experiments on children that murdered them, right? So she's like totally traumatized by this. Well, yeah, and like, yeah, rightfully so. I feel like that's also kind of like the disregard of human life that the magisterium mm-hmm. and especially her parents tend to have is like this, this sense of... Like, oh, well, of course it's going to hurt. Like, I trust, 
I trust Mary here, but like, there's no way that like the action of doing science is not something that is going mm-hmm. to be like extremely painful and traumatic. Yeah. So it's, it's so opposite. Like she's just a, so much of a better version of that. She's someone who is coming into it, not with like a desire for power, but a desire for knowledge, which I think is very, um, in keeping with Pullman's themes, right. Of like how curiosity and, and like the search for knowledge is kind of like the important thing in life. I think it's, it's funny because that's, that to me is like the sort of, I mean, this is like a children's, it, it's a spiritualist children's story for atheists. So like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's naturally going to be how it works, right? Like the, the end goal is like, okay, we got to teach children that like the thing that matters in the world is like this curiosity and search for the truth and not like, you know, power and authority and stuff like that, which I think is like, I don't know, I think it's really, it's great uh, that that's the perspective, but it also is, um, Almost a trope at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is a kind of like new atheist trope thing, which is kind of where Pullman is situated. Uh, I think part of what makes this this dynamic work really well also is that is the way that it I mean, it doesn't totally resolve, which is great. Right. So it leaves some Lyra has to run away and Mary's like, she, she's got to come back. Right. But but it does have like a uh, an actually a pretty good arc. It's not all like exposition. It's like. At the beginning, Mary is taking her seriously, but it's kind of, it probably just thinks that she is, you know, maybe just ha- in some kind of distress and needs some help, right? It's not like necessarily treating her like this is a girl from another world or whatever. She's just like, this girl is something's up, right? And then by the end of it, Lyra has like walked up to her computer where she's only gotten it to kind of occasionally have like these particles talk to her in some way, but she can't figure it out yet. And Lyra walks up and it's just like, making images show up she's like make just you know has the the run of this thing and then uh then she just has to run away and the the scene of mary like the dawning realization that like something is up with this girl like she's what is this she knows how to use my machine better than i do and like is you know making progress that took me years and then it just gets like cut off and she's like has this moment of of it's great. She's like a scientist. We had this established with the uh, when Lyra uses the alethiometer, a scientist who used to be a nun, right? So went from this experience of like faith and religion to this like kind of cold rationality of science and then gets faced with something that is like seemingly inexplicable and magical and then is left without it and has to like deal with what is going on. Like, well, how do I process this? Lyra basically breaks her brain. Lyra yeah. breaks her brain and then comes back and is like, uh, yeah, sorry, I'm just going to leave you with this. Uh, sort it all out. I'll be back at some point. <laughs> yeah. And I'm to your point about it being like an atheist, a spiritualist atheist book. I think that, like this whole thing, especially just I think the, you know, uh, Simone Kirby's performance does a great job with it. It really does a good job of conveying that idea that it's like this isn't something that's against the idea of spirituality. Like there, it's, it's actually challenging the idea of pure rationality that like this kind of magical thing walks into this scientist's life and she has to process it. <laughs> Well, and I think that that's the part that I find like really interesting and, you know, motivating about it is that like the point, you know, that they're trying to make is that like you will be confronted with things that you don't that you don't have like a rationalist explanation for in your life. And like how you respond to that is a thing that matters. And like she manages to do that with empathy and with kindness versus Mm -hmm. like the magisterium's like attempt to sort of shut it all down. 
Um, which is like, like the kind of overarching like narrative and sort of like, this is the good version. This is the bad version sort of approach to it. But like, I can't even get mad at that because that's like, you know, as much of a new atheist trope it is, as it is, it is like super sweet to watch that play out. Like it's, it's adorable. Like I don't want to say adorable. It's heartwarming to see these kids like be taken seriously, to be like listened to and to see like a healthy version of like inquisitiveness and like a response to that that isn't just like shutting them down. So like let them flower and grow. Yeah, actually, that ties into some of the other parts of this episode, because I hadn't thought about how explicitly those are being contrasted. Right. But like the magisterium has an interrogation where they just shut it down and say that's heresy and imprison the person they're interrogating. And Will has a meeting with his grandparents who he just discovered exist, who are not taking him seriously and are actually using it as like a trap to get the police to come arrest him. Right. So it's it's this contrast where Lyra has this brief moment of being taken seriously by an adult and having someone just have like a genuine curiosity in her, whereas everybody else is being faced with just this like pure exploitation. Right. And and yeah, that's happening across multiple worlds in, you know, multiple scenes with multiple people. So, yeah, uh, let's talk about that magisterium scene, which I think is one of the weaker parts of the episode. It's got some great aspects of it, but. I think like dialogue wise, it's it's kind of it's kind of weak. Like I, I wasn't sure what is going on in it. Like what information are they trying to get? It just did. It seemed like it existed for exposition more than actually kind of like driving any kind of plot forward. Right. It's purely just like ooh, the magisterium, like this, you know, like evil institution or whatever. Like it doesn't really it doesn't really make sense outside of that. But they, they don't ask questions that have a clear goal, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like bad interrogation techniques. Like, come on. Like if you're going to do some torture, like <laughs> Mrs. Coulter was a lot better. Maybe maybe that's what they're doing. <laughs> Mrs. Coulter is a better interrogator. <laughs> Yeah, so the show is like unequivocally pro-torture. Like, you, <laughs> gotta... you have to do it right. Yeah, you have to be effective at it. That's the show's position. Not my position, by the way, or your yours. Torture is bad. <laughs> no, no, this is a this this podcast is a strictly anti-torture podcast. That's right. Let's see. I was going to say for that scene. Yeah, so it introduced some witch lore, some of which I think is not in the books and some of which is stuff that gets introduced later. So that was kind of interesting to me. They talk about... Dr. Lancelius actually like reveals some details about how the witches are able to separate from their demons, that they like go to a place where the demons can't go and they kind of force themselves to separate that. That's a kind of big reveal, I think, like it, it's, you know, this mystery of the witches that's been unveiled here. Yeah. And that they're that they're also very specifically like matriarchal. And they also say that like no mm -hmm. men and no demons can go in that place. So it's like it's very much a like it it almost follows that like the matriarchal structure of the witches is put in contrast with the patriarchal structure yep. of like yep. the magisterium. They're very explicit about that in this episode, which is a little on the nose, but I like the way it it, it in, uh, interacts with Mrs. Coulter, who is clearly chafing more than ever at the idea that she's like this incredibly powerful, personally powerful woman in a man's world. Right. And just like this feeling of like, I could run this place <laughs> if it weren't for this. Yeah, Everybody here is irritatingly incompetent, which, yeah. <laughs> you know, to her credit is true. Um, yeah. And she yeah. is super confident. I mean, she's also evil, but she's like incredibly competent. And you, you feel the way that it's like, man, this is like just 
like even though she's evil it's like this is a the you can feel how much like the just the the sexism of this world keeps her from being the top evil person like how she's so much better than all of them she's gotta listen she's gotta break those evil glass ceilings exactly exactly <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's very i you know i thought that that was i thought that was really cool like mm-hmm. that if they're going to drop that yes it's on the nose but it also is like in a scene that is specifically meant to show this like like you know con this this budding conflict between the magisterium and the witches and the sort of like attempt to conquer and contain that's the sort of like part of like European hegemony, European patriarchy, like that sort of thing. Well, then they, they explicitly make reference, which I don't know if the books really did to like witch hunts, right? Like the, the way that they are most not, not, I guess not explicitly, but it's pretty obvious what they're doing. Cause there's a bit where they talk about like, you know, the witches use their magic to seduce men and and steal their seed or whatever. Right. Which is like literally almost exactly the stuff that was like said about witches and like witch hunts and stuff. Right. Right. And the whole idea of it being based on such like, I don't know, like that, that felt that almost felt like just a little bit over the top only because it was such a direct allegory to like all of those, that sort of act of like patriarchal supremacy in early modern Europe yeah. um, that was sort of like carried out. I don't know. I'm like, okay, cool. You've read Sylvia Federici. That's great. Um, <laughs> well, I think it's, I, yeah, I, it was, that whole scene is definitely very over the top, but um I mean, I think it kind of works because the whole idea of the magisterium, if if it wasn't obvious already to uh, to non book readers, I, I think the show hasn't it, it sort of hides it, but not well enough that like if you're paying attention, you're not going to notice it that like this is a Christian church here. Right. There's like crosses and things and they talk about Adam and Eve. And yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it is it is basically it's like a Christianity that never got out of that mode. Right. <laughs> Yeah. never never yeah. modernized yeah, or anything. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and, it, and it stuck with it like oh this is like a christianity without like the great schism without the mm-hmm. protestant reformation without like basically a sort of like this monolithic christianity from the middle ages that's just been sort of like transplanted into like what is effectively 1920s 1930s like you know industrial society i was gonna say i was gonna ask um I, I asked this in the chat and I don't think we ever figured this out, but what is the, what is the structure of the magisterium? Is the cardinal uh, the head of it? Is there, is there a Pope? Is there like, what are, well, so I think, the, I think the book answer and the show answer are slightly different as of this point, but it could be that they, maybe they'll introduce some of the stuff that's in the book later, you know? So I, I guess I won't mention like the, the book version of it, but I will say my understanding of it in the show canon is that basically, yeah, I guess there's a cardinal who is in charge of it, or at least is in charge of the parts that we see, right? Like the the war-making parts and stuff. And basically Father McPhail, I guess, becomes Cardinal McPhail now. He's he's uh, leveled up. Yeah, yeah. He's gotten his he, you know, church promotion. He reclassed. It feels very, like, we don't really get, we don't get clarity into that. Like, we can tell there's some deliberate, some deliberative process going on. And there's some sort of form of, like, almost like a papal election. Yeah, where they take it the seems, yeah. seems deliberately, like, referential to that, to, like, papal elections. Yeah. 
But then it's, you know, we don't get any clarity as to like who is above, who is above McPhail. Like who is the, who's above the rank of Cardinal? I guess like, as far as I can tell, it sounds like nobody, at least nobody that we care about yet. Mm -hmm. Um, But also I really, (laughs) I really do love uh, Coulter is like, you know what? Like you owe me for this FYI. (laughs) Yeah. Well, she basically cuts ties at the end there. Right. And she's got a great line where she says, uh, I've constructed a web in which you are both the spider and the fly. (laughs) Yeah. It's really great though. I mean, it's, it's good to see that that was her plan all along. I mean, like the idea of it is basically like, I want a pliant person mm-hmm. who I have something over to be like the head of the magisterium. And she's achieved that. Now she can kind of go rogue. She can do whatever she wants. Well, also she goes rogue because she, Thorold shows back up and she uh, talks to him, notably doesn't torture him or anything, just walks in and asks him questions. And he he doesn't know this for sure, but he reveals enough evidence for her to figure out that Lyra probably went through Azrael's window. And so she's not even here. And I think that's kind of a turning point for her where she's been doing all this machinations with the goal of finding Lyra in this world. And then realize this organization she just kind of gained all this power over isn't even in the world where Lyra is. And so she's just like, well, I'm going to go off and do my own thing. I don't need you right now. <laughs> Well, and not only that, but she still leaves like a pliant organization mm-hmm. behind. Like she's she's very much just sort of like, okay, cool. My machinations are wrapped up. I can put this on hold, go do my own thing and know that nobody's going to stop me from doing that. Which I think like that part of it actually felt really, that part of it felt like complete in a way, in the sense that like, okay, cool. Like she's, we're done with, we're done with this story. We're done with her like, you know, trying to sort of gain control over the magisterium. And now it's more on to like what exists beyond that. Yeah, I like that he's like, he's like, are you after Azrael? And Ruth Wilson, always amazing in every scene, just has this kind of like little laugh. And she's like, I'm after some, something much more important than that. Right. <laughs> Which is, of course, her, her own daughter. Yeah, well, her own daughter, but also I feel like the plot of the plot of the second book uh, of Subtle Knife is very much like you thought that this is what mattered, but actually it's something entirely different. Yeah, but I also I like that there's this ambiguity of like she's after something more important. But is Lyra important because she's Mrs. Coulter's daughter or because she's like the child of the prophecy or because of both? Right. And like you're not you're not sure what Mrs. Coulter wants to do with her, right? Like, does she want to keep her safe? Does she want to kill her? Does she like you, you? You aren't actually sure. She just wants her, right? It's like it's it's basically a manifestation of her desire for power. Right. I was about to say that she doesn't really care about any of those things. She just knows that Lyra is the factor that she can't control right now and wants to be able to exert control over her. Mm-hmm. She'll probably tell herself that it's, oh, I miss, you know, I really want to, you know, have, you know, control over my daughter or whatever in like this sort of like parental authority kind of way, which Pullman is critiquing. But it, it's also very much just like, I don't know, she's power hungry and Lyra doesn't have, is like exerting her own will. So that probably drives her up a wall. <laughs> yeah. And Lyra is important to all of these people in power, right? And I think that probably bothers her that it's like, why is she so important? Why does my daughter get to be so important? (laughs) God, it's just, I know she's such a great actress for such an awful person. (laughs) Yeah, it's, 
she's the star of the show still. I mean, Mary, Mary is great. Loving seeing her. But uh, nobody's nobody in this show is going to beat Ruth Wilson as far as the the acting goes. Right. Well, and I think you also get, you know, when you're playing a villain, you get to be diabolical. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she's nothing if not like very good at playing diabolical. (laughs) Yeah. And and a key thing about her character that I think especially shows up later is that she is able to just manipulate her way out of any situation. And I can already see how Ruth Wilson is going to do a really good job with like some of those scenes later where she's kind of got a sweet talk her way out of something. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I feel like Okay, cool. Like, clearly Lyra gets it from somewhere. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Time for the demon corner. Let's talk about how the demons were this episode. Very good, I gotta say. We're getting so many more demons and so much more demons used the way they should be used to, like, enhance uh, dialogue scenes and, and, and enhance, like, inner monologues, like, make inner monologues external in a way that feels natural. They're, they're doing all of that now. Yeah, and you know, I, pan in the bag is ah. one of my favorite things. Like, it's adorable, and obviously, you feel bad for him being stuck in the bag. But also, like, you know, him kind of having those scenes where he's like Pops popping out. out. Yeah. Like, I don't know; it's just great. Oh, I loved when Will is like, "You can't have him out. He's got to go in the bag." And then Lyra's like, "Sorry, Pan," and puts him in. He goes, "Unbelievable!" <laughs> he's like really angry about it. It's great, <laughs> snarky. Yeah, he's snarking being put into a bag. Who wants to, you know, like, they're sentient beings. I don't want to be stuffed into a bag. (laughs) It's kind of funny, though, like, that he would get stuffed in the bag because he can transform, so he could turn into, like, a moth and just, like, stay, you know, in her pocket or something. But I guess it's, like, funnier to have him be the little uh, ermine in the bag. (laughs) Yeah, you know, and I I thought it was really, like, also the... um, the the uh, uh, magisterium guy that had the tarantula demon ooh, um, ooh. was perfectly executed as well. And it is this sense of like, okay, yes, they are definitely diving into this a lot more than they did in season one. I mean, the magisterium scenes have demons in the first place, which there were very few of them in the first season. And now everybody's got them, right? That guy's got his tarantula demon. We actually see and hear the for the first time we actually get voice acting for Father McPhail's demon. Yeah. And like that's a that's a great scene. That's exactly what demons should be good at in the show, which is like he's he's kind of punishing himself for the sin of what he is about to do, which is to attack the witches. And like demons are often in the books, they're often described as being someone's conscience. But in this case, like she's his guilt. She's like driving him. He's afraid to put his hand on the candle to to punish himself. And she's like, do it. She's like forcing him to do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, you know, demons as this sort of internal force, demons as this kind of like motivator. Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, we're getting the clarity of that, like, especially as a storytelling device is like a lot clearer now than it was in season one. Yeah. And we see Thorold's demon for the first time, by the way, who was not present at all in season one. They just like pretended like she wasn't there. (laughs) I forgot about that. Yeah. In in the jail cell, she like she just like looks up for a second and she's like this this little dog which is very accurate for Thorold, I think, who's a very loyal servant, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's very... Oh, I didn't even... Yeah, I didn't even pay attention to that. Like, it was something I kind of missed. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm really happy about that. And I, I mean, if that's what we're in for for the rest of the season, that is great. Like, it. I wish we had more of that in season one, but at least 
for people who stick through to season two, it's going to be more and more clear, like how these demons kind of interact with their humans and stuff. Right. And you almost need that more in season one than season two, but also the way budgets yep, work, yep. it's more likely that they're going to only get the budget for it once it's a success. Well, also, also there's fewer, there's fewer people with demons like in this story because it's not all taking place in Lyra's world. Right, exactly. Well, I was going to say, you know, I, I don't know. I knew it'd be kind of a big get, but like, it would be really cool if like on your podcast or any podcast, they could get an interview with one of the people involved in animating the mm. demons for like the effects crews. Because I feel like having to do that in so many scenes with so many different people is like enormously time consuming. And also like you have to factor it into your acting that the objects don't exist. Well, yeah, they, they had puppets for it is how they did it. It's, it's pretty cool. So like in. Oh, they did it with puppets. Yep. Oh, I thought that they were animated. Oh, OK. Hold on. They are animated. What I mean is the in the scenes with the actors, they have puppets that they, they're acting against. And I think the the um, what's the word for that? Puppeteers are like I think they do some kind of um, temp voice acting for it. Right. Where they'll kind of read the lines and move, you know, the little puppet Hester or whatever. And then like Lin-Manuel Miranda will be talking to the puppet. And I've seen some footage of it and it's it's very cool. It's so it's better than just them like staring at nothing. Pretend there's a rabbit there, you know. <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of how I assumed it worked. But like, that makes so much more sense that they're basically just like doing stand-ins and then replacing mm -hmm. it with animation later on. Like, that that feels uh, a little bit more cohesive for the actors. But I also am still fascinated about like pr the process yep. of, you know, digitally removing those puppets and adding the animations and all of that stuff that has to just be enormously time consuming. Yeah, that's probably more work to remove the puppets than it would just be to add an animated demon on top of nothing right so that that also probably contributes to the the cost yeah but there i mean it, it's working perfectly like you can tell from the season that like the way that they're doing it is like very the performances that the actors have you know against the demons is like very like realistic lifelike and that's happening basically because of like the methodology they're using to do this which mm -hmm. is cool yeah uh, I think maybe last point to talk about a little bit is and we talked about this a bit before, I think, is like I think this episode develops Lyra and Will's relationship more, which is really crucial. And I think the one of the big things here in this episode is that Lyra learns that from the alethiometer that she has to help Will find his father. So this is the first that she knows about that. And there's a great scene at the Botanic Gardens after they meet. And it's I mean, Again, just talking about kind of like how these these relationships develop, there's a nice push and pull in this episode of them kind of trusting and not trusting each other and coming back together. And so when she shows up late to the Botanic Gardens, Will's really angry and they kind of have this argument that slowly gets diffused. And I love the tension between like she knows this stuff about him and she knows from the alethiometer that she's supposed to work with him and trust him. But he is, for extremely good reason, not trusting and when she says, like, you killed someone, he freaks out. Right. And he's like, well, how do you know that? Like, did the police tell you? Are you right? He's he's like, because he's just been like betrayed by his own grandparents. Right. He's like, he has very good reason to not trust people. And when she says, like, you know, about finding his father, he's also 
kind of that sets off this alarm bell because everyone, all these people he can't trust are after his father and after information on him. Yeah, I that lack of trust is something that I find like uh, almost endearing because like, of course you shouldn't trust Lyra. Like Lyra <laughs> like lies all the time. Yeah. But like in this case, they're meant to trust each other and Lyra goes out of her way to make sure that like he knows that he can trust her. And I think that's really, I don't know, I feel like that's kind of like, you know, like trying to sort of show like what the alethiometer is saying to kind of like give a sense that like, listen, I'm not just making all this stuff up. Yeah. And it's it's these two people who are, you know, a little broken, a little, you know, they've been they've been betrayed. They've been kind of abandoned by by adult figures in their life. And it's it is very satisfying to watch them very slowly kind of open up to each other and realize that they're on each other's team. Right. And that they can they can kind of rely on each other. Well, and that, that happens through the specific efforts of like both of them trying to come to terms with that. Mm. And it's not always easy, but like they make the point of doing it. Yeah. So that's very heartwarming. And there's a lot of stuff like that in this episode that like, even though it doesn't have the kind of, you know, exploring Chittagasi stuff, that's part of what made it feel so compelling to me is there's a lot of relationships that we get to see develop in really interesting ways. And like, just like I said in the last episode, it just feels like the writing in general from the dialogue down to kind of like the subtext is more sophisticated here. It feels less like they're just moving the pieces into place and we're getting real character moments now. Yeah, well, and I like seeing that too, but I guess like part of me, I'm a very impatient person. And so I think part of me, it's like, yes, I see where you're coming from on this, but also I want to go back to Chittagatsa. Like, <laughs> Well, yeah, without spoiling, we will be back in Chittagatsa at some point. So uh Looking forward to that. I think I'll end here with something just for the for the book readers, uh, not to spoil anything, but I just want to, of course, call out the thing that I, I can't talk about in detail here, which is there is a location in this episode that had a lot of us book readers freaking out. Uh, so, you know, you can come back to it later, show fans, and, and you may know what we're talking about. <laughs> Uh, a lot of lot of good a lot of good little Easter eggs here for book readers, which I, I like, and they're kind of not done in a way that I think would tip anybody off if they hadn't read the books. But it's just kind of like a little like, yeah, you guys know what's up, you know what's coming, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is what happens when you're doing any show that is based on like a book source material. Is like you you have to drop little hints, mm-hmm. you have to kind of like reward the people that have gone out of their way and become like you know big fans of the books as well as the as the TV show. So it's it's cool. Yeah, for sure. All right, so I think that's it for this episode. If you want to find more episodes of Shadow Particles, shadowparticles.club is the URL. You can send me an email at shadowparticlespodcast at gmail.com. I will read them on the show if you send a question or comment or something like that. And you can subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. Leave a review to help more people find the show. Five stars, please. Let everybody know how good it is if you like it. If you don't like it, you can just not leave a review at all. As for me, you can find me on Twitter. I am Vamptvo, V-A-M-P-T-V-O, Kara. I am at Kara Esten, C-A-R-A-E-S-T-E-N. And anything else you want to promote? Stuff you've got going on, been on any other podcasts? Honestly, I was on... Well, actually, in between season one and season two, I was on uh, my friend Evan's, a different Evan. (laughs) Um, uh, I'm only on podcasts with people named Evan. This is weird. Um, But he runs a transit podcast. So if you're interested in uh, transit history, uh, 
You should follow him on Twitter. His uh, handle is at NOT12X. And he has a really great uh, history of transit, history of labor organizing transit, kind of completely, you know, orthogonal to this podcast. But like, hey, there might be some crossover. Yeah, I mean, if it's people who follow me on Twitter, there might be crossover <laughs> in terms of like leftism and yeah, dark exactly. materials. I figured yeah. leftists love trains. That's true, though, actually. Left, you know who loves trains? Leftists and otaku, uh, two of the people who follow me on Twitter. <laughs> so I think that's uh, as good a place as any to wrap it up. Thanks for coming on the show, Kara. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I will see you all after Thanksgiving next week to talk about episode three. Later. Later.